Our scripture reading this morning uh, is from the book of Psalms, chapter 121. You can find that on page 516 in the Pew Bible in front of you. I invite you to stand uh, for the reading of God's Word today. Psalm 121, a song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, as most of you know, uh, this past month has involved a lot of travel for me and my family. We drove over 4,000 miles in just about two weeks, uh, which with four kids in tow was interesting, to say the least. Uh, But what makes those kinds of uh, what seemingly foolish road trips worthwhile is usually the fact that you're going somewhere. There's a destination that you long to get to seeing family in Nebraska, or drinking in the beauty of the Big Thompson Canyon as you're driving up to Estes Park in Colorado. Even if your trip is merely for sightseeing, every new sight becomes your next destination. The point is rarely just about going, but going somewhere. We travel in pursuit of a destination. And even though this is a little bit cliched, Uh, That is a fitting metaphor for life, that we're all on a journey. We're all moving somewhere, not just for the sake of moving, but toward a destination. There's some place or some place in life where when we get there, we can look back and say, I finally arrived. We long for that. Uh, Could be a certain position in a company or uh, a certain kind of home or family Uh, special, specific accomplishments for your kids or a fitness goal, or maybe it's just getting away or getting back on your feet. There's some destination in our hearts and in our minds we dream of where when we get there, we'll be able to look back and say, wow, I finally arrived. The funny thing is, whatever destination we pursue... Whatever place in life we think will make us feel like we have arrived, they all eventually leave us wanting. None of those things we set ourselves to pursue actually satisfy or give us the sense of accomplishment. We think we, they will when we get there. Because every destination that we select is but an echo of, of the real home that we're looking for, which is not a place, it's a person, it's God. 
In his confession, St. Augustine famously said of God, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. God has made us for himself, and our hearts are restless. We have not arrived. We are not home until they find their rest in God. So life is a journey, but whether we realize it or not, the real destination every single one of us is after is nothing less than God himself. And that's true for everyone. It's true for everyone. It's especially true of the Christian, though. Uh, To use a biblical metaphor, we are a pilgrim people. We are a pilgrim people. We are travelers in pursuit of a holy destination. When we believe in Christ, that new journey begins. That journey which we find out is actually the real journey that we've been looking for. We are rescued from sin and death. We're given new life through faith in Him. We begin this new adventure of growing in our knowledge of God. But we are not yet home. We have a destination, but we are not there. So we are forgiven, but we are not perfect. We're growing in godliness, but we have not arrived at godliness. And so we're on a journey. And with hazards and obstructions all around us, by grace every single day, we seek to put one foot in front of the other in our pursuit of Christ, knowing there is a destination waiting, and it is beautiful. The presence of God Himself fully and finally in His glory with Him in heaven and the new creation. So we are a pilgrim people as followers of Christ. And ancient Israel was also a pilgrim people. But for them it was often more than a metaphor. They took very literal pilgrimages to Jerusalem, often three times a year for their uh, annual festivals. And that journey would involve all of the joyful anticipation and all of the potential danger that you would imagine would be common to such a trip in the ancient world. But to help them on their way, ancient Israel had a soundtrack, if you will, the mixtape that you you make before, or or the playlist, I guess, to get my metaphors current. Um, They had a soundtrack to help them on that journey, and it's what we find in chapters 120 through 134 in the book of Psalms, what's called the Songs of Ascents. If you look in your Bible at the superscript, look at chapter 121 again, the psalm we just read together. If you look at the superscript, it's that little small print just before verse 1. You'll see the phrase, a song of ascents. And you'll see that little phrase above every psalm from 120 all the way to 134. A collection of 15, 15 psalms all titled a song of ascents. And our best guess at what that means is that these were songs often sung by ancient Israel as they made their pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, on their way up to Jerusalem to worship God together as a people at his temple. If you look at Psalm 122, just the next chapter, you see a related word describing that journey. 
Verse 1, it says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. In verse 3, Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, or to which the tribes ascend. That's a, related to that word, a song of ascent. Israel's going up to Jerusalem to meet with God. And so our passage this morning is part of that collection. Uh, this is actually also the theme of our Sandy Island retreat that's coming up in a few weeks. We're going to return to these songs of ascents and look at several of them together over that weekend. Because these songs are not just history of what ancient Israel once believed and found helpful. This is the word of God to all his people in all time and all places. And it is his word for our journey as well in our pursuit of God. And so we want to bring these songs to bear on our lives, to find the help and mercy and joy we need as we pursue Christ. So if you look at chapter 121, this is clearly a promise of God's protection for the journey. That is not hard to see when you read through that psalm. First, you notice the travel imagery. The author is scanning the hills. He speaks of how his foot's not going to slip and how the hot sun will not strike him in this language of coming and going, being on the move. And then notice the repeated words in the psalm and what they emphasize about this journey that he's making. The opening question, from where does my help come? Followed by the answer. My help, repeated word, comes from the Lord. And then there's this description of what that help looks like, the repetition in verses 3 through 8 of the word keep. I hope you noticed that when we read it earlier. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. Six times. He repeats this word, keep, or to guard or protect. The main idea is very clear that the Lord is your only true protection as you pursue Him in a fallen world. That's the point of this psalm. But that raises a few questions. Why do we need His protection? Can't I handle this on my own? Is is life really that hard that I need... God to intervene? Or what keeps me from depending on his protection? Why is that so hard when his promises are so clear? And what does that protection actually look like when I'm pursuing Christ? What exactly does he promise us in this psalm? Does this mean I'm not going to have to worry at all about hardship as long as I'm trusting Jesus? Uh, That I won't face any sort of difficulties or trials? Is that what it means that he keeps me from all evil? And if not, then what does it mean? What confidence can I have that God will bring me safely through on this journey? And so I want to briefly explore those questions together. Three questions in particular. Why do we need the Lord's protection? What keeps me from depending on it? And what does it actually look like? What does God's protection mean? that he promises here, really mean for my life? And so the first question is, why do we need the Lord's protection? 
Look again at the very first line of the psalm. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So the song opens with this picture of the psalmist getting ready to kind of embark on his journey. And he's standing there, lifts his eyes and scans the hills. But what is he looking for? What is he looking for in the hills? It's possible that he's lifting his eyes to the hills to look for the Lord, that that the hills are kind of a metaphor of God's help. But far more likely is that he stands there scanning the hills through which he must pass in order to get to his destination. Hills that represent the dangers of the journey ahead. Treacherous paths that he's got to navigate. The exposure to the sun. Robbers or attackers who might be lying in wait. Think of the the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. The hills are the psalmist's reminder that if he's going to make this journey, he's going to need help. I've got to make it through that. From where does my help come? He needs protection for the path ahead. And the same is true for every one of us as we pursue God in a fallen world. No matter how clear the destination is in your mind, no matter how meticulously you have planned your journey, we're going to go this far this day and stop at these rest stops and whatever, there's always risk involved in the journey. On our return trip uh, from Nebraska a couple weeks ago, we had planned to spend the night in Cleveland, Ohio. We left Des Moines, uh, not as early as we hoped, and and we were going to make it to Cleveland. And that was our goal. And so we booked a hotel in Cleveland. And and as we're pulling into Cleveland about, I don't know, 1130 or so, we decide we better call the hotel, let them know we're going to be late check-in. Because it's almost midnight and we don't want them to give the room away. And so we call the hotel, hotel, Carissa calls, and, and they don't have a room for us. They overbooked the hotel, and they had no mercy either. Uh, They had no solution to offer us. And so we kept driving, like, I guess we're going to Erie then. And so we kept driving, and we we booked another hotel and called and confirmed that, and they had overbooked as well. And, And there were no hotels in Erie. There were no hotels in Cleveland. There were no hotels in Buffalo, at 3 a.m., we finally pulled off into a rest stop, and I said, kids, get your pillows, get comfortable. <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get breakfast at McDonald's in the rest stop in the morning, and we slept a half night's miserable sleep in the rest stop. So I don't know a single family trip that we have ever planned that I can look back on and say, that went exactly like it was supposed to. <laughs> it doesn't happen. It doesn't. And, I mean, there's always traffic, there's, there's flat tires, there's, there's fun, don't get me wrong, there's, there's the music and the band and the games and the, there's beautiful scenery, but there are dangerous roads, there are dangerous drivers, there are crabby kids, there are trips to the ER. That is the journey of life. Nobody plans to get laid off or outsourced. When you set out your career plan, it's not like, okay, I'm going to give three years to this company, and then they're going to kick me out. You don't plan that. Nobody plans to get divorced. 
or to lose a child. No one plans to get addicted to painkillers after a knee surgery. You shouldn't have to worry about racism or discrimination in this world. We shouldn't have to worry about being able to pay the mortgage. We shouldn't have to worry about people taking advantage of us. But this world is broken. And we are broken people in it. Every one of us is stained with sin to the core of our hearts. And so if we're going to make this journey, not just to survive, but to truly thrive in our knowledge of God, we're going to need help. We're going to need help. We need protection. But where does that help come from? That's the psalmist's question. The answer is clear. My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and earth. But if the answer is so clear, why do I have such a hard time believing it or applying it? Why do I so often feel vulnerable and alone in that journey? Why is it that so much of life can feel like you're just kind of going in circles and not making any progress or just going through the motions? You get in the car, you buckle up, you turn it on, you put it in drive, and the tires just spin. I don't feel any closer to God. I go to church, I pray, I read my Bible just like the people tell me to, and I don't feel any closer to God at the end of the day. Sometimes I'm flat out driving in the wrong direction. So, that brings us to the second question. What keeps me from depending on the Lord for protection? If he's so obviously my help, what is it that keeps me from actually depending on him? Well, if we look carefully at what he promises us in this psalm, you can see behind it some of the common threats to actually depending on the Lord. So, for instance, sometimes we don't depend upon God because we don't think he's that interested in us. We don't think he's really got the time or attention. I mean, why should the God of the universe condescend to my little drama? Isn't this a little bit below his pay grade? I mean, who makes an appointment with a world-famous brain surgeon because you need a Band-Aid on your scratch? This just seems like I'm bugging him unnecessarily. Or we think that he would be interested if my life wasn't such a mess. If I hadn't screwed up so bad and so often, then he would want to help, but he's just kind of done. He's got to be done because this is ridiculous. I don't deserve his care. It's my fault anyway. I got myself into this mess. I'm going to have to get myself out. And so we look for protection elsewhere. I mean, God helps those who help themselves, right? That's what we hear. Except that's not in the Bible. For whatever reason, we often live as though God's not paying very careful attention to the road. That he might cross the line, or he might fall asleep at the wheel. And so we're going to have to find protection elsewhere. He's unaware or uninterested in the dangers we face. But listen to the promises of verses 3 to 4. 
He will not let your foot be moved. That's the picture of, of taking a step on a treacherous path. And he's not going to let you misplace your foot so that you accidentally slip. He's not going to cross the line when he's driving. That's his careful watch. Or he who keeps you will not slumber. He's not going to fall asleep at the wheel. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't have to pull over and take a nap. He doesn't get bored watching over you. Instead, his care for you is constant and laser focused. He doesn't miss a detail. And that's a promise. That's a promise God gives to his people. Not because we deserve it. Not because I had a really good day today. I actually read my Bible like I said I was going to and I prayed. I had a good day and God's going to watch over me now. No, there's not a single one of us who deserve this kind of care. But he gives it in his love and his grace. It's a promise. And so sometimes we don't depend on God because we don't think he's that interested. He's too big. Sometimes we don't depend upon him to protect us because we don't think he's big enough. We look at the hills, we size up the threat, and we conclude that nothing is actually able to get us through that. Nothing can help me break this addiction. Nothing can save my marriage. Nothing can ever rescue me from the sinful habits that ruin my relationships and hollow out my soul. Not even God. We so fixate on the problem that we become blind to the solution. We, we fixate on the hills, forgetting that there's the God of creation who made those hills, standing over them, offering his help. We forget the promise of verse 2. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Or listen to the promises of verses 5 and 6. The Lord is your keeper, your protector. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun that threatens to strike you by day. You know, the dangers of, of sunstroke or dehydration in a journey. God is bigger than that. He's your shade. He is able to protect you from that. Or the moon that threatens to strike you by night, which might be a, a reference to the, the dangers of exposure to the cold, but more likely is probably a reference to madness or lunacy. It's the old superstitious way of describing uh, going mad. We even still use that word today. People... Uh, Think of coming under the influence of the moon. You call them a lunatic, lunar lunatic. And so it's this picture of the mad, going mad, losing your mind. God is your shade to protect you from that as well. He's bigger than that. He's more than able to protect us in the journey. And so let me ask you this. If God is able to create the hills... Is he able to carry me safely through them? If God is able to create your marriage, 
is he able to resurrect it and give it new life? If God is able to save your soul from hell, is he able to come up with the rent this month? If he's able to rescue you from sin's penalty, is he able to rescue you from sin's power as well? If God places you in a situation, is he, the maker of heaven and earth, able to carry you through that situation and accomplish in it everything he intends? The Lord is your keeper. He is your protector. If you have Jesus, you have the God of creation on your side. That's a promise. That is a promise. But what does that protection actually look like? That's the third uh, and final question I want to ask. What does the Lord's protection look like? Look at the the concluding verses in 7 and 8. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. There's a very real temptation to read those verses as a blank check. That if I follow God, everything's going to go well for me. He promises to protect me from all evil. That means nothing bad's ever going to happen again. No hardship will befall me. Life is going to be easy And there are some of us who come to God thinking that that's the deal. That if I give my life to Christ, everything's going to be better now. And so when that doesn't happen, when suffering remains, when hardship endures and smacks us in the face, we get sick. Our parents get sick. We lose our job. Our child slips into depression or an eating disorder. Our friend gets diagnosed with cancer. We're just spinning our wheels in life going number. When when hardship smacks us in the face, if we treat this verse like a blank check, we're left to conclude either that God lied or that the problem must be with me. I must be doing something wrong. I'm not holy enough, apparently. There must be some sort of hidden sin in my heart that I need to like search out and get rid of, and then life will go better. Or, I'm just not trusting God enough. My faith is too small. Otherwise, I'd be happy and healthy and prosperous, and, and God and I, we'd just be having a party. But the Christian life doesn't look like that. Life in a fallen world does not look like that not according to the clear and consistent teaching of Scripture. There is a party waiting. There is a party waiting for us at the destination, this great feast and banquet in the very presence of God, free from all sin, all pain, all death. And we look forward to that. But none of us are there. None of us are there. And the journey in the meantime is war. And so what 
does God actually promise then? What does it mean that he will keep us from all evil? It's not that we will not face trials or hardship in life, but that we will not be destroyed by them. We will not be owned by them because we are not alone in them. It's a similar picture to Psalm 23, the great shepherd psalm. I don't have to fear walking through the valley of the shadow of death, the trials and brokenness of this fallen world, not because I know how to avoid the valley or because I'm strong enough to take it, but because the shepherd is with me. That's what makes the difference. It's his rod, his staff. That's where I get my comfort. Not because I know what to do, but because Jesus, my shepherd, is with me and he knows what to do. And so whatever trials or hardship I face, I know I will not be destroyed by them. As our brother quoted from 2 Corinthians earlier. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, yes, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. We will face trial, but we will not be destroyed by it. We have confidence that Jesus, our shepherd, is with us. And if he is with us, he will carry us safely through. And he will accomplish exactly what he wants to accomplish through that trial. Our brothers here are living testimony to that. That's the promise for the Christian life. Listen to how Paul describes it in Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Sounds like an awful lot of trial. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Suffering will happen. But it will not destroy you. No, in all these things, all of these horrible trials that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a promise. That is a promise. That Jesus is your true protection in your pursuit of Christ whatever befalls. And what qualifies him to make that kind of incredible promise 
is the fact that he's gone before us in defeating evil and disarming death by giving his life on the cross. He's the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep and who then takes it back up again. So every trial, every tragedy, every sin born out of our sinful hearts, Christ took and made his own on the cross that he might bear it in our place. And so if you have Christ, you're not alone in your trial, in your hardship or suffering, no no matter how desperate you feel, no matter how afraid you might be. Christ knows what you're experiencing. He bore it for you. He is with you in it right now. And he will carry you through. He's your protection as you pursue the Lord. And when we do arrive, when we do meet him face to face, it will be worth it. It will be worth it. And there is a great cloud of witnesses who've already gone before us and can attest. But most of all, there is Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, walked the journey of death, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. The Lord is your protector, and if you belong to him, he will bring you through. Let's pray. Lord, how we need to hear this message from your word so often, more often than any of us will admit. God, we confess how often we think to ourselves, we've got this. This problem, this trial, I can handle this. Lord, what a sham. We are so weak. We are so in need of you. And you are so present by your spirit. Lord, thank you for being our protector. Help us to depend on you for our protection. And give us the grace to cling to you as you accomplish your good purpose in us. Give us the grace to follow you and hold fast, knowing that you will bring us safely home. And God, may we, in the midst of that journey, be a picture and testimony of others of the kind of God you are. A God who still does miracles. A God who still redeems and makes us new. Lord, you are our help our only hope, and we praise you that you're with us. In Jesus' name, amen.